everyone. You're listening to The Katie Helper Show, and I'm your host, Katie Helper. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show, where for just $1 a month, you can help make the show happen. And for $5 a month, you'll qualify for great bonus content, including an alternative podcast feed and rarely seen clips that aired on our live shows. Welcome to the Katie Helper Show. Please like this stream. This is how we beat back the corporate overlords and tech overlords who try to control our destinies. Like the stream. Give us a thumbs up. Also, please subscribe. We hit 70K subscribers. That is so exciting. So we're so grateful for that. Also become Patreon supporters at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show because this week we will be dropping this great Susan Sarandon interview where she's like so prophetic and talks about how the Dems didn't codify Roe v. Wade. And this was actually months ago, this interview, but it's as applicable and relevant now as it was then. And we're on our way to 100K subs, as Tyler points out. And everyone say hi to Tyler. Everyone say hi to Brad. And thank you, Solidarity. Thank you for this super chat, Brian Frederick. Thank you. Saying Solidarity, Katie. Thank you so much. So make sure you do that. Subscribe, share, like, rate and review the podcasts wherever you listen to your podcasts. And yeah, so excited to be here with you. So excited about today's show. We have a great show. We are talking to Christian Smalls, as well as Brittany Ramos de Barros. And they are going to be talking about two very interesting things. You probably know, unless you've been living under a rock, about Christian Smalls. But at the beginning of the pandemic, Chris organized a walkout to protest the safety conditions at Amazon Fulfillment Center on Staten Island. They fired him the same day. And in a leaked email, Amazon's chief counsel sent out an email describing Smalls as, quote, not smart or articulate, and urged the company to use him as, quote, the face of the entire union organizing movement, and to lay out a case for why Smalls' conduct was, quote, immoral, unacceptable, and arguably illegal, end quote. And it's fair to say, I'm editorializing here, that their plan backfired. He and his co-workers formed the Amazon Labor Union, and on April 1st, 2022, the Amazon warehouse voted in favor of unionizing and being represented by the Amazon Labor Union or ALU. So without any further ado, bringing on to the stream, Christian Smalls. Hello. Welcome. Hey, hey, thanks for having me. Of course. So glad to have you back on the stream. So excited to have you back. Now you've been successful. I mean, we are always excited, but it's very exciting now that you struck this victory because we were excited before. And now it's very encouraging. It's great to see a win against a behemoth like Amazon. Something that you've been very good about is that you've really emphasized that this isn't just your story. You've talked about how much it's a story about workers and people you've been organizing with. And we heard this week that Amazon has fired two employees involved in the organizing drive, Matt Cusick and Tristan Dutchin. So can you just tell us what happened? Well, um, no, this is Amazon system that that is the reason why they get fired just via email or via apps. Um, right now, we're still ironing out all the details for their cases. They're two different cases, two different buildings. But we are obviously taking legal action to uh, hopefully get them reinstated. So we're just in the process of doing that. You know, that's all we can do at the moment is just, you know, fight to, to get them reinstated by filing Two more uh, unfair labor practices, just on behalf of the union, because uh, they did help organize as well. 
And is there anything that we can do to support this? Yeah, I mean, you know, we, we just have to continue spreading the message out that this is what this company does as consumers, as supporters of the union, supporters of the Amazon labor union. There's been a number of online campaigns and also rallies that uh, they've been a part of. You know, things like that is always supportive for the workers to see the outside support. It's, it's powerful. So in the meantime, you know, of course, the, the battle is going to be with the legal aspect of it. But uh, we love the, the support of New York and uh, the city as well. So when you talk about unfair labor practices, can you just explain to people what some of these unfair labor practices look like and what it looks like when a highly funded company like Amazon or Starbucks or anyone else engages in kind of a counterinsurgency? Yeah, well, we have we have a real famous one on TikTok is is the Tammy video. Um, The Tammy video is when HR comes into the break room um, right after one of our organizers put down some literature uh, pro-union literature for the workers to collect while they're in the break area, which is a non-working area where we're allowed to talk about unionizing and organizing and leave our literature. Um, HR management or any type of management is not allowed to touch that literature. So if they do, uh, they throw it away, they take it, they confiscate it. That is uh, unfair labor practice. So we actually got on video of HR walking in directly right after one of our members put down literature and throw it in the trash. And she's caught on video. So that right there is a clear cut violation of unfair labor practice. And you recently had an interesting exchange, and we're going to play part of that exchange with none other than Senator Lindsey Graham, who is always outraged and indignant on behalf of underdogs like Amazon or Kavanaugh or Samuel Alito. He really plays the upset, outraged pearl clutcher very well. I'm not sure that Mr. Graham knew what was coming. So, Brad, can we play that exchange? The idea that you can only get a government contract if you promise to be neutral is ridiculous. Boeing is in South Carolina making the 787. There's been efforts to unionize Boeing. They lose. The people in that plant will make that decision. The idea that Boeing can't argue the merits of a right-to-work environment for their business is ridiculous. And I think patently illegal. This is a heavy-handed approach, the most radical agenda in my lifetime. And it should be carried out at the ballot box, and it will be. If we take this body back, this demonization of individual companies that are subject to the law will cease. Thank you. Um, Well, first of all, I want to address Mr. Graham. Um, First of all, you know, it sounded like he was talking about more of the companies and the businesses in your speech, but you forgot that the people are the ones who make this these companies operate. And if we're not protected, and if the process for when we hold these companies accountable is not working for us, then that's not what, that's the reason why we're here today. That's the reason why I'm here to represent the workers who make these companies go. And I think that it's in your best interest to realize that it's not a a left or right thing. It's not a Democrat or a Republican thing. It's a workers thing. It's a workers issue. And we're the ones that are suffering in the corporations that you're talking about and the businesses that you're talking about 
in the warehouses that you're talking about. So that's the reason why I think I was invited today to speak on that behalf. And you should listen because we do represent your constituents as well. Um, so just take that into consideration that the people are the ones that make these corporations go. It's not the, it's not the other way around. Wow. Well said. What was Lindsay's face like when you were saying that? Um, I don't even think he looked me in my face, to be honest. You know, um, it's, he threw me off my speech. I can tell you that, you know, I, that was all off the top of the head. That was straight from the heart. You know, I want everybody to know that, you know, I, I had a, something prepared, but, um, you know, just what hearing what he said to me was like, you know, forget about what I got. I, I got to address this while I have a room full of workers behind me and, and myself included. Yeah, that was pretty, pretty great moment. All of your testimony was great. And you also had an interesting well, there's a little video of you with President Biden. Brad, could we show that? You got trouble over here. Thank you. My kind of trouble. Congratulations. You got a little trouble by, you may recall, I was uh, Sam looking forward to it and being organized. Yeah, well, but you got it done in one place. Yeah. That's the stuff. That's right. So I thought it was interesting that Biden put out this clip, which is basically him talking to you. It would have been a much more interesting thing if he had highlighted what you were saying. But what was that like? What was it like meeting Biden? And are there things that Biden could do and isn't doing that could help workers at Amazon and workers in general? Well, the same way I, I approached Mr. Graham, um, you know, I definitely was very adamant about what I was there for. I wasn't just there to talk about, you know, have a photo op like everybody is assuming. I had some demands, of course. I, I asked the president to, uh, you know, help us get recognized. You know, we're not recognized until we get through this whole objection process with Amazon. And uh, we need some type of pressure from the administration so that, you know, companies don't get to uh, just dispute elections after we, fit, we fairly beat them. We all watched it. So, um, you know, I asked for that type of support. Uh, they obviously didn't play any of that dialogue, but um, that was just my mission to go there and to to get recognition for our Amazon labor union. And, uh, you know, uh, they they pretty much was telling me that they're going to do some things. Uh, they didn't get into any details, of course. Um, I did talk to uh, Secretary Walsh, the secretary of labor, um, had a great conversation. And we also uh, will have some more in the future. And uh, the vice president, she's saying that she's going to get involved. So, you know, I'm just going to wait and see. You know, they told me that the world is watching. So I said, yes, the world is watching. So I, we all know who we need to hold accountable. It's not going to be the workers. We're going to be the ones holding them accountable. So the clock is ticking for sure. And what about Biden giving Amazon contracts, like literally while meeting with you? Well, see, here's the thing about that. It was going to happen anyway. You know, we have nothing to do with that. You know, sure, of course. This is what they've been doing for years. If anybody should be upset, it should be everybody. This is your tax dollars, not you know, not mine. I haven't paid taxes in two years. I'm unemployed. So it, it's, it has to be a community effort and uproar. It can't just be the workers in the warehouse or the Amazon labor union. You know, everybody's trying to blame, you know, my photo op for the reason why they did. Oh, no, I didn't. No, not you. Not you. No, Twitter fingers. So it's just like we all have to be upset. It's not it's not just the workers. It's not just myself. Um, these are our tax dollars and they're using our tax dollars to bail out billionaires. It's been going on forever. And whether it's this administration or the last administration, this is what 
they all do. So, you know, we all need to be upset about it and, and take some type of action, collective action. Yeah. And there's a bit of a debate, I guess, uh, on the left. Some people think that the way to support workers is to boycott Amazon. Other people say that that's not really what the ask is. What is your position on boycotting Amazon as consumers? Well, I, I can't really say anything about that as far as boycotting because, uh, you know, the workers legally can't do that. But I I always say uh, stand in solidarity with the workers, whatever that call to action may be, whether it's just a demonstration showing up, volunteering, canceling your prime, something to advocate for. But other than that, you know, boycotting Amazon is not going to be as effective as people think. You know, most of their money is made off of AWS, which is the web services anyway. So we just have to, once again, spread the message about the stories that are being told from these workers, the horrific stories, the grievances that we hear about. We have to uplift those stories so that consumers understand what type of company that they're dealing with. And maybe they can make the conscious decision to stand in solidarity with the workers until they do better. I know you're in a rush. So just really quickly, last two questions. One is, is there anything that Biden or the NLRB, the National Labor Review Board, could do like right now to help support workers, not in November, but right now, or anything that could be introduced on the state level or federal level to help organizing workers? And then the other question is, what should be the litmus test for progressives assessing if candidates are serious or providing lip service? Like, what do, what do you think a good way to determine that is? Because a lot of people, I think, cozied up to you after the fact, after you won this victory. So do you have any advice on that front? Yeah, you know, right now what the Biden administration needs to do is they need to add more funding funding and money towards the NLRB so that the NLRB is funded to the point where they can keep up with the amount of cases they're receiving now. You know, with our situation and with Starbucks and other places starting to unionize a lot more, I think it's up 57% since last year. You know, these uh, NLRB offices are very underfunded, very understaffed, and it's very difficult for them to keep up with the process as these workers are trying to organize. We learned that the hard way as well, and we're still dealing with that. And they need to obviously, of course, pass the PRO Act. That's something that uh, we need to get passed to help workers organize, encourage workers to organize, to be protected. And if not, you know, Biden definitely has an executive order pin. You know, I would love that he can use it. You know, he should use it to do something in regards to labor because labor movement is booming right now in the country. As far as, uh, you know, politicians with lip service, you know, call them out. That's exactly what I did. You know, it happened. It happened with the AOC situation. She didn't show up the first time, but we had a conversation um, months later, even though we kind of expected that we we had to do that so that we can let people know that we're we're not the ones to blame. It's the ones we elect. And we got to make sure that they show up because they uh, they support our community. They have to show up and holding them accountable is something that we all can do. Well, thank you so much, Christian. This has been an amazing interview. I'm really grateful. I know you have to go. So we'll have to hopefully have you on again for for more time when you're not running out the door. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye, you too. And that was great. Wow, Christian Smalls, that was such a treat. So glad to be able to talk to him. He was in a rush. He gave us so much time. So grateful. So much gratitude. So great to hear from him. Now I'm going to bring on our second guest and this is very exciting because she's someone who actually did some organizing with Chris Smalls. Her name is Brittany Ramos de Batros, who is a community organizer, a proud Afro-Latina Staten Islander, 
combat veteran running for Congress in New York's 11th district. And she grew up in a deeply patriotic military family and entered the army in order to help pay for college. Her time in Afghanistan changed her mind about war as she came home angry, hurt, and feeling betrayed by a system that covered up greed and corruption with the veneer of freedom. She quickly realized that these same problems were happening at home, across the country, and directly within her own community. The Barros is determined to help lead the fight to build a better, more just world, the world that we deserve. How's, I mean, I'm sold. So without any further ado, Brittany, welcome. Team Brittany. Hello. Hi. Thanks for having me. Of course. Thank you so much for coming on. Of course. It's my pleasure. I want to start out by asking you about your connection to what happened in Staten Island and how you met Chris and how you became familiar with the Amazon Labor Union. Yeah, it's been incredible to watch the journey and, you know, watch so many more people get the opportunity to see the Staten Island that I know that has grit, that doesn't take bullshit, right? And that, you know, I think is really ripe for groundbreaking organizing as we're seeing. Chris and I met for the first time in person um, on the steps of the Capitol building during Cory Bush, you know, Representative Cory Bush's protest pushing the government to extend the eviction moratorium in that really critical moment, I went with a contingent of housing activists and constituents of New York 11, which is the district that I'm running in, Staten Island and Brooklyn. And, you know, we we road trip down to D.C. to join and to show our solidarity because our incumbent Trump Republican congresswoman was shaming the poor and saying, you know, oh, well, you should have prepared, you should have worked harder if you're at risk of eviction. Meanwhile, she's never had a real job in her life and is a millionaire who's had everything handed to her, right? So the hypocrisy of that made us feel like we had to take action. And we met Chris and other ALU organizers on those steps and sat there throughout the night talking about what they were up to, you know, what they were hopeful about. But I think more importantly than that, we, you know, since then, I definitely don't want to overstate the role I've played in in terms of organizing with them. But I've just, you know, I've just tried to show up every way that I can because their fight is my fight. It's all of our fight, right? It's It's a fight for a government, a society that allows us to live with dignity. And that's really all we're asking for, right? Is to is for all of us, whether it's workers' rights, reproductive rights, access to healthcare, um, you know, protecting the environment so that we're all not underwater in our basements in Staten Island every time there's a storm, as climate crisis continues to escalate, you know, whatever issue, it's really about the fundamental idea that we all have a right to live, that we all have a right to be able to live and have our basic needs met in a country that is so wealthy. And so over the time I've seen them stop by the warehouses, they're out there every day, rain or shine. I've seen them out there in the scorching heat. I've seen them huddle around trash can fires to stay warm in the dead of winter, you know, surrounded by ice and snow. And that is the kind of commitment, discipline, determination that I think is a beautiful model for what it's going to take for working class people to come together and rise up and say, we are the majority and we demand, right? Like we will not be silent anymore. We are taking control of our destiny, of our future and building one that actually works for us. I know you're not claiming a lot of credit. Uh, I just wanted to show people that Chris did endorse you, Chris Smalls. Uh, when it comes to standing up for working class people of Staten Island, I believe Brittany Ramos de Barros is the candidate that will fight for everyone. She is a real hero, a veteran organizer, a wife that will bring our everyday issues to the forefront. So congrats on that. 
Can you talk about your personal evolution? You were a veteran. What did you saw in combat that changed your mind and how you became an anti-war veteran? Yeah. Well, like you mentioned, and like a lot of people, I went to pay for college. You know, I think it's really important that we reflect on what it says about us as a country that our only real federal jobs program or federal college scholarship program to scale requires you to carry a gun for the government. You know, I I really want people to think about that. And it's part of where my passion for um, shifting our priorities and making sure that we have a real moral budget and agenda and that we're actually investing in life, right? And not just destruction for profit. But, you know, by the time I graduated and commissioned as an army officer, I was a platoon leader responsible for 40 lives. I took that responsibility really seriously. And I already had deployment orders to Afghanistan. And back then, you know, we were supposedly deploying as part of withdrawal operations. The Obama-Biden administration back then had promised that unconditionally we were leaving in 2014 no matter what. And so I was a part of setting up the logistics process for that with an engineer battalion, as well as maintaining security operations as people prepared for withdrawal almost 10 years ago, right? And so I went as a kind of true believer. I thought, okay, we're doing this the right way. You know, we have leaders who are trying to do the right thing here. I am going to go protect the Afghan people from the bad guys and fight for democracy. But when I got there, what I saw was so obviously that we were just adding to the violence, that we were doing a lot more harm than good. And I could see the way that corporations were really running the show, And you had active duty troops on food stamps trying to take care of their family and their kids still, risking their lives every single day on the front lines. Meanwhile, you would find that there were corporate contractors that had been there for years making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. And so I came home knowing I didn't support what I was a part of, but I I was confused. It took me a while to kind of make sense of what I had really been a part of. The Afghanistan papers came out as black and white evidence proving that our elected officials and appointed officials had been lying to our faces about the status of the war, the mission, right? So many different things. And, you know, the only people who have really been held accountable for that are people like my friend, whistleblower Daniel Hale, who leaked the evidence that President Obama was boldface lying about drone warfare being targeted and precise and, and that evidence showed that, in fact, nine out of 10 targets that we were killing with our drone strikes were unintended targets, meaning innocent people, right, that we didn't intend to kill. And so to me, that it was, it was a process of, of kind of seeing the just obvious systemic injustices that were not only betraying the Afghan people, but also our troops, our veterans, right, who were sent to potentially kill and die on lies. Right. That's not right. We should be able to trust that at a minimum, that if we're being sent to risk our lives and potentially kill and die, that it's actually for a just reason. And so, you know, I think that it's important that we talk about that unapologetically, directly, truthfully. I think we can't change this system until we confront the truth of the scale of violence that continues to be underway. And the fact that our almost trillion dollar military budget, half of that goes to corporations. And a lot of people don't realize that, right? They think it's going to the troops, support the troops. That's kind of how it's sold by politicians. Um, And yet there are over 40,000 active duty military families, at least that's that's assumed to be a very low estimate because it's not not well tracked, are on food stamps. 
And so, you know, this system is really failing all of us and, and we need the leaders who have the courage and backbone to stand up and say it's time for a change with credibility. And what kind of organizing have you done around the war or anti-war activism? Yeah, I, so, so that was my first thing, right? I was in the reserves because I owed all this time to the military for my scholarship. And I definitely, as a working class person, couldn't afford to pay all of that back. And so I thought, okay, I'm just going to kind of keep my head down and do what I have to do. But when Colin Kaepernick took a knee, it sounds kind of cheesy, but it really struck me like lightning watching all of the people around me weaponize the flag and veterans like myself against a man for standing up for the very freedoms that we say that someone like me is joining the military to fight for and to protect, right? And I I kind of wrote this long, passionate post articulating that I think that if anything is considered patriotic, right? If we believe in this idea of patriotism or love of country, that that fighting for our country to live up to the values that we say that we believe in should be considered the deepest form of love and commitment, right? And I was surprised by how many people responded to me saying, you know, you made some points I hadn't thought about before, but I still just can't support him because the veterans. And I realized how knee-jerk that reaction is how conditioned that response is, right? It's not even logical for people at this point. Um, And so I realized in that moment that I had a voice, that there was power in my voice as a combat veteran to speak truth um, about that issue, and that I had a responsibility as a person who participated in an unjust war um, to tell the truth about what was really happening and the need for change. I joined the Poor People's Campaign because Reverend Barber was, you know, talking about Martin Luther King's Um, you know, original Poor People's Campaign, which talked about the interlocking evils of poverty, racism, and militarism, that those are so interlocking that we can't pick them apart. They're systems, right, that we have to address and understand and adding environmental degradation. Um, I quit my job. I started consulting so that I could jump in with both feet. And I became one of the founding coordinating committee members of the New York Poor People's Campaign. I went on to work on the national team. I joined About Face, Veterans Against the War, which is an organization of all post-9-11 military veterans doing anti-war advocacy and eventually went on to work as the organizing director of that organization. Um, And I've been a part of several different you know, coalitional efforts in national movement to really build infrastructure and unity um, across working class people who often have checked out or feel disappointed, you know, feel kind of um, disillusioned for understandable reasons. But to say, look, we are the leaders we've been waiting for. We have the power when we come together to organize and make real systemic and structural changes. Um, and, you know, I consider myself a person who has dedicated my life to that cause, whether that's organizing in the streets or whether that's running for Congress to make sure that we have advocates who will boldly tell the truth in the halls of, of Congress, um, you know, that is, that is something that I anticipate dedicating the rest of my life to. And what about issues uh, related to the border and immigration? You've done some organizing on that issue, right? Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, when we think about militarism and I'm doing anti-militarist work, we, you know, we start to, the more you dig, the more you see the ways that this kind of monster of militarism has its tentacles in every part of American society including, right, the way that we think about 
how the logic of how do we create safety with the escalation of the militarization of police forces, of national agencies, right? When we see tanks rolling down small town streets, um, it's clear that something is awry and, uh, or is something has, has gone awry. And, um, you know, we, we, when we connect the dots, we see that the 1033 program is a program that allowed the military to kind of um, transfer its excess materials to police departments across the country um, that they didn't necessarily need, but, but, but that gave them an excuse to transfer this material and therefore have an excuse for more contracts to buy more supplies, right? And that's how that corporate profit loop works. And then Congress approves those contracts. And so, um, you know, we see the ways that the logic, the, 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 the weapons, the equipment, et cetera, from um, what are typically thought of as just for war zones have allowed our communities to often be treated like war zones. Um, and that includes the border. I, you know, when the migrant crisis happened um, a while back and, you know, I watched families be chased down by agent by federal agents on horseback who were just fleeing violence that often frankly the US historically has had a hand in contributing to in propping up puppet governments and you know um engaging in interventions in South America and Central America that have led to a lot of the violence and destabilization um or often not talked about our state department is the largest weapons dealer in the world where do we think all of those weapons are coming from, right? We sell thousands and thousands and thousands of weapons that just get pumped into countries all over the world. And that fosters environments of gun violence all the way from here in the United States to countries that are impacted by that violence. And so for me, that felt very connected to the anti-war work I was doing because at the end of the day, we're talking about a system where we're trying to move away from uh, militarized violence and move into a system of safety through care, through proactive planning and organization. And, you know, it was, it was, I felt compelled. I was already on the West coast and I ended up marching with hundreds of clergy with the poor people's campaign, um, with several other veterans like myself and getting arrested at the border merely for kneeling and praying at the border wall. Um, and I, I, I think that, you know, it was one of the most aggressive arrests that I've ever had doing civil disobedience, but, or direct action. Um, and in fact, we beat that charge in court, um, which I'm proud of my, you know, my friends and I said, no, we're going to challenge this because we want you to have to explain why it's illegal for us to kneel in the sand by the border in solidarity with the migrants that you're terrorizing and perpetuating literal violations of international law on the border that I saw with my own eyes when I was volunteering in Tijuana. So um, that's a lot, <laughs> but yeah. That's great, yeah. Can you talk about being investigated by the military? Yes. Um, yeah, I guess I, I left that, I kind of skipped over that part of my story. So when I, when I kind of came to the realization that I had a responsibility to speak out, I you know, I, I started giving speeches. I was working with the Poor People's Campaign. And, um, you know, I started getting kind of warnings and threats for my chain of command, like, oh, people are complaining about your social media. And I said, okay, well, I will continue to not do anything illegal. That's what I can commit to um, because it's not illegal for me to give a speech against the wars on my own time, right? And um, and then I had two-week orders. I gave the speech in front of tens of thousands of people in D.C., and it was a very emotional speech. Um, 
the first time I really kind of said really publicly um, how I felt about it and kind of, it felt like a line in the sand for me in my life um, and there was no going back. So when I had federal orders in a couple of weeks, I knew that I needed to continue to at minimum tell the truth. You know, I thought, well, if I don't show up for my orders, that doesn't really accomplish anything. Um, but what I can do is I can continue to share these facts. So I scheduled one fact, very simple, mostly from public uh, government forces, uh, government reports, I mean, um, to post on my social media every day for the 14 days that I would be on federal orders. And they were not partisan. So technically, I didn't break any rules. It was just things like the DOD burns an average of 10.3 million gallons of oil per day. We are bombing seven countries, and most people can't even name all of the countries that we're bombing because it's become so out of sight, out of mind. Things like that that were pretty objective. Um, and, you know, a few days in, I got doxxed. Um, and next thing I know, my commander's screaming at me. And um, I find I'm on the front page of the Army Times um, with some ridiculous headline that was like, Army officer goes on anti-military tirade. Um, and, but I was really pleased because they included all of the screenshots of all the facts. Oh, I was like, thanks for helping to get the message out. But I found out in that article that I was formally under investigation. Um, and you know, that investigation dragged out. They, you know, they said that the recommendation from it was to court martial me for conduct on becoming an officer and a gentleman. Uh, that's still the official title of that charge. <laughs> Someone just wrote, I was at the board with Brittany and volunteered with her in Tijuana. She's a badass and amazing human. So there are some people in the chat and some people are just done with the Democrats and they're like, okay, this person's a Democrat, so forget it. What is your response to people who've become totally cynical about the party? Yeah, my response is that that's entirely understandable and valid. And I think that we have to be um, realistic about the fact that if we want things to change, um, the two party systems controlled in, you know, in kind of unity by a corporation, a system of corporate control, um, has been very effective at insulating itself. Um, they have created structural barriers to competing as an independent. That's why there are no independents that haven't also run on a Democrat line elected in federal office. Right. And so, um, I think that as much as I empathize and agree with people's disillusionment, at the end of the day, for me, it, I can't I, I can't surrender to this kind of um, cynicism because I truly believe that that is how our enemies win. I believe that one of the ways that the oligarchs, frankly, protect their power is by um, you know, cultivating the kinds of conditions that lead us to despair. And so I think that in so many ways, uh, a discipline of hope, as Mariam Kaba says, is one of our best weapons, one of our best antidotes. And so for me, this is about, you know, it's not about parties. It's not about red or blue. It's not about left or right. I was an independent for most of my life. Um, but I'm running as a Democrat because structurally, that is the only way for working class people like me who want to contest for political power for the people, because that's what this campaign is really about. It's not really about me. I'm playing a particular role. I'm holding a torch, right? But this is about building working class power with the vision that I'm sick of being intentionally 
forced into this cycle where we're making demands of power. I want us to learn from the movements of the global south, of Bolivia, of all of these places that orient their movement towards taking power to advance an entire agenda. And I think that that means that we have to get enough working class champions in Congress to at least loosen the screws um, and the structural, remove some of the structural barriers so that we can build independently and effectively and build political power that way. Um, or to take the reins of a party and say, this is the future. We are the majority of the country. We are going to pass policies that we know the majority of the country want, which is the progressive agenda, um, and to have the numbers to be able to actually set the terms, set the agenda, um, and advance that agenda effectively. And that's a long game. It's going to take years of work, but I see myself as part of that larger political project. And I don't realistically see another path to the scale of political revolution that is necessary in this country for us to be able to truly live in dignity beyond contesting at that level, while all of the other approaches and strategies are also continuing to be advanced by folks who are more passionate about those things. My thing on this is we've had on Adolf Reed, he tried to organize a third party. He hates the Democrats. And his thing is like, well, sorry, we tried, we failed. I think it's great for people to keep organizing. I think honestly, people who are cynical, understandably cynical about the Democrats, you should be looking at working outside of electoralism. Like maybe it's just that electoralism isn't where the things are going to happen. So you should be forcing politicians' hands as much as possible. And the way you do that is not by running as third party or supporting third party people. I mean, maybe on the presidential level anyway. So that's my take on it. But I understand people have strong feelings on it. I'm appreciative of people trying to infiltrate. It's going to be someone, guys, here's the thing. It's going to be someone in Congress. It's either going to be a total asshole or someone who, yeah, I'd rather have someone who's disappointing me who I can maybe try to leverage. And no one wants to look at this. This is not Brittany saying this. This is me. We on the left have to look at how we have to grow so that we can actually leverage stuff from politicians. That's unfortunate, but that's just the way it is. Like it's not on us, but it kind of is on us on an organizing level. I'm going to lose a lot of subs maybe here or whatever, but I honestly think that's true. And speaking of which, speaking of it's going to be someone the map was just rezoned, right? In a way that actually helps your campaign. Yes. Yes, we think so. So the new maps for anyone who hasn't been following the New York congressional maps got down. So we then had to wait for a new iteration of the maps to come out. So we got the draft. It won't be finalized until Friday. Um, But the first draft shows our district here in New York 11 keeping all of Staten Island and Bay Ridge, which have always been part of the district, but then expanding up into Sunset Park, excuse me, and Red Hook and parts of South Slope. Um, Those are all heavily communities of color, working class communities that have recently elected bold, progressive women of color like myself who have endorsed me, who who we are working together with to build this campaign and make sure that we can deliver a victory in coalition for our communities. Um, And so I feel really excited about what lies ahead. I think we have, um, it makes it a little bit more of a fight in the general than it was going to be under the previous lines that they drew. But I feel confident that we can, with the coalition we have, 
around us that we have the momentum necessary to bring home a victory in the general. And in fact, we can't afford to kind of have a candidate in the general who already lost to Maliotakis as an incumbent with a three times fundraising lead in a year where there was historic Democrat turnout, right? I think that that says that this is not the person who can really energize the bases of communities like immigrant communities, young people, um, communities of color, et cetera, that, you know, the kind of lesser of two evils argument is not going to be enough. And I think that because so many of those communities, a lot of people can see themselves in my story, can see themselves in me and are hungry for representatives who know what it's actually like to get notices threatening to kick you out of your home or rely on church friends for groceries um, and the struggle that so many of us are going through. And um, and I think that that's why we're the best campaign to be able to really energize people and make sure that we deliver a victory in the general. Last thing before you leave, I want to tell people about something you did that got you into a lot of trouble with the New York Post, which is, of course, a great badge of honor. You performed in a burlesque show, NYC candidate Brittany Ramos de Barro strips in military burlesque. So that's cool. That's another thing that you have under your garter belt, so to speak. Yeah. (laughs) Well played. You know, I think that for us, that was about how do we do political education that really moves people and helps people to kind of become more and more conscious about these systems of violence that aren't just continuously preaching to the same choir, right? If you host a militarism 101 workshop, the people who already care about war and militarism are the people who sign up. But if you have a burlesque show, (laughs) you're able to reach such a different crowd. And we literally took the curriculum of our kind of community workshop um, that we would do militarism training and put it into the arc of that show um, so that it was education, but rooted in, in joy in the body, right? In reclaiming our bodies um, from these systems of violence that treat us like we're tools and exploit us, whether that be through war or in the workplace um, and the the fight that Chris is fighting that we were talking about earlier, right? And so um, I think that that really embodied... <laughs> Uh, approach to to political education and to community building is really important. Awesome. And any comments? Uh, another question was about your thoughts on funding the war in Ukraine. Yeah, I think that this is a really complicated scenario because for me, I start from a place of just utter frustration that we have really only invested in one tool for generations to confront international crises. And that is kind of big stick military force projection as a strategy to essentially leverage kind of fear and and, and the ability for us to kind of bully people into deterrence, right? And, um, and to our, and bend to our will. And yet, um, you know, here we are in a situation where my deepest concern, and I think a human-centered concern outside of, you know, this kind of ideology is how do we save lives here? How do we de-escalate um, and prevent this from spiraling into World War III, <laughs> right? This could easily spiral into uh, a global catastrophe that could cost millions and millions, if not billions of lives um, and or destroy the planet. So, um, you know, I hold a really a, a kind of soberness and centering of 
of the humans in the region and um, the need to, to figure out what is the best path to de-escalation. And I think that there's a lot of different arguments for what that path is. I personally am not a pacifist. I do believe that um, as much as I am anti-war and anti-imperialism, and I, you know, one of my mantras is let this be the generation we end the practice of colonialism and occupation, right? But I think that the reality is, is that also the invasion that we're, we're witnessing is an imperial invasion. Um, and I think that we don't have to erase one to acknowledge the other. Um, and so I think that, you know, my position is that the U.S. shouldn't be doing anything unilaterally, um, that the U.S. needs to be mindful of the escalatory relationship and role that it plays to this conflict um, and find ways to build multinational um, solidarity that supports Ukrainians in defending themselves from this horrific invasion um, and saves lives, but also holds the contradiction of the fact that the Ukrainian government has issues as well, and we shouldn't erase that. And so, you know, we don't have to glorify um, any government in order to acknowledge that there are moments like this where we want to intervene to save lives. And so, you know, that's complicated. For example, I got, I upset a lot of people because I said, I do support targeted individual sanctions. And people were like, anti-sanctions. And I was like, yes, and we need to talk about this with nuance though, and pragmatism as well. Otherwise, the right-wing forces just wave us off and say, see, none of these people actually have an answer for how to move in this moment. And, you know, we the answer can't just be do nothing <laughs> um, while we watch people die and get mowed down and we have the ability to do something. And so I think it's, um, it's you know, it's, we're caught in this contradiction because of uh, the lack of investment in international, in genuinely independent international diplomatic structures um, and the way that the United States, unfortunately, has often operated to undermine the integrity of those of the existing structures. Um, and, you know, all of that has to be acknowledged. So I know that that's probably a dissatisfying answer all around, but I want to showcase how I think about navigating the nuances and contradictions and centering values and practical needs in the moment. Someone put in there, I think this summarizes what I think, which is then send food, medical help, transport visas, not guns. That's my position on it. But yeah, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate your coming on. Best of luck. And yeah, we'll have you on again. I hope so. Thanks so much. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. And people can find out more at her website, which is BrittanyForCongress.org. Awesome. Okay. Bye, Brittany. Bye. Thanks again for listening to The Katie Helper Show. If you like the show, please join the Patreon at patreon.com slash The Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash The Katie Helper Show. Please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, we remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. Our show is produced by me, Katie Helper, Nick Palm. Brad Bloom is our audio engineer and an associate producer on the show. Our researcher is Joshua Bregman. And our theme song is by the band Cordova. See you next time.